The Miseducation of Cameron Post, Chapter 2. Now this one's going to be a little bit shorter just because of the way that the chapter's broken up. But hopefully it'll be fine. Um, and I'm sorry for any background noise that you might hear. I just really can't control it. But yeah, here we go. Aunt Ruth was my mother's only sibling and my only close relative save Grandma Post. She made her entrance the day after my parents' car crashed through a guardrail on the skinny road that climbed the ravine over Quake Lake. Grandma and I were sitting in the living room with the shades drawn, with a sweaty pitcher of too sweet sun tea between us, with a Cagney and Lacey rerun filling up our silence in gunshots and sass. I was in this big leather club chair that my dad usually read the paper in. I had my legs pulled up close to my chest and my arms wrapped around in front of them, and my head resting on the dark, dry skin of my bare knees. I had been in this position for hours, one rerun after another. I used my fingernails to dig half-moons into my calves, my thighs, one white indentation for each finger, and when the creases faded away, I did ten more. Grandma jumped when we heard the front door open and shut. She did her fast walk towards the entryway to head off whoever it was, People had been stopping by all day with food, but they had all rung the doorbell. And Grandma had kept them on the front porch, away from me, even if they were classmates' parents or whatever. I was glad for that. She'd say some version of three or four of the same lines to them. It's just been a terrible, terrible shock. Cameron is home safe with me. She's resting. Joni's sister, Ruth, is on her way. Well, there are no words. There are no words. Then she'd thank them for coming by and bring back to the kitchen another casserole dish of broccoli and cheese bake, another strawberry rhubarb pie, another Tupperware bowl of cool whip rich fruit salad, another something neither of us would eat, even though Grandma kept fixing us both heaping plates of the stuff and letting them pile on the coffee table, fat black houseflies buzzing over them, landing, landing, buzzing again. I waited to see what she'd haul to the kitchen this time, but Grandma didn't seem to be getting rid of whoever was at the door. Their voices at the entryway mixed with the voices on TV. Grandma saying, accident. Cagney saying, double homicide. The other voice in the entryway saying, where is she? I let them blend, didn't try to sort them out. It was easier to pretend that it was all from the TV. Cagney was telling some detective that Lacey had a black belt in karate, right as Aunt Ruth walked into the room. Oh, sweetheart, she said. You poor girl. Ruth was a stewardess for Winners Airlines. She served on 757s that did daily Orlando to Vegas trips for retirees looking to strike it rich. I'd never seen her before in her uniform, but her normal clothes were always so put together. So, Ruth. This person crying in the doorway and calling me poor girl looked like a clown, made up like sad Ruth. The skirt and shirt of her uniform which were the exact same shade of green as the felt of a casino card table, were travel-rumpled and creased. She had a brooch on her lapel that looked like a spread of poker chips, with winners in shiny gold across the arch, but it was pinned crooked. Her blonde curls were messy and squashed on one side, her eyes pink, and the skin around them puffed up like mascara-stained marshmallows. I didn't really know Aunt Ruth, not like I knew Grandma Post. We saw each other usually just once a year, maybe twice, and it was always fine, nice enough. She'd give me clothes I probably wouldn't end up wearing, 
She'd tell us funny stories about unruly passengers. She was just my mum's sister who lived in Florida and who had fairly recently been born again, something I understood only vaguely as a reference to the particular way she practised Christianity and something my parents rolled their eyes at when they spoke of. But not in front of her, of course. She was more strange to me than Mrs Clausen, but we were related, so here she was. And I was glad, I think. I think I was glad to see her. Or at least it felt, just then, like it was the right thing, the correct thing to have happened, for her to walk into the room. She wrapped up both me and part of the chair I was in in a tight hug that filled my lungs with Chanel No. 5. Ruth had always, always, since I could remember her, smelled like Chanel No. 5. In fact, I only knew of that perfume, its name and spicy scent, because of Ruth. I'm so sorry, Cammy, she whispered, her tears wet on my face and neck. I'd always hated when she called me Cammy, but I didn't feel okay hating her for it right then. You poor thing, you poor sweet girl. We just have to trust God in this. We have to trust him, Cammy, and ask him to help us make sense. There's nothing else to do. That's what we'll do. That's all we can do right now. She told me this over and over and over, and I tried to hug her back, but I couldn't match her tears, and I couldn't believe her. Not one word. She had no idea how guilty I was. After Mr Clausen knocked on Irene's bedroom door and ended my final sleepover with his daughter, telling me, as he scooped up my bag and my pillow, that I needed to go home, and then taking my hand and walking me out of the house, past Mrs Clausen as she stood crying over the brown kitchen stove, and away from Irene's unanswered shouts of, Why does she have to go? But why, Dad? I knew that all of this meant something probably more terrible than anything had ever been in my life, ever. At first I thought that Grandma had fallen, or that maybe they'd found out about the shoplifting. But then, as he drove me, still in my pyjamas, the 40 miles back to my house, the whole trip telling me nothing more than that my Grandma needed to speak with me, and that I needed to be there with her, I convinced myself beyond a doubt that Irene and I were found out. It was Mr Clausen's silence during that endless trip, silence filled only with a thick roll of tyres over cracked highway and his occasional sighs in my direction, plus the way he shook his head to himself. That convinced me. He was disgusted with me, with what he somehow knew that Irene and I had done, and he didn't want me in his house for one more second. I sat all the way against the hard door of his truck, trying to will myself into something small and distant from him. I wondered what Grandma would say to me, what my parents would say when they got home. Maybe they'd come home early. Some park ranger had tracked them down to tell them about their widow daughter. I tried out various scenes in my head, none of them good. It was only a couple of kisses, I would tell them. We were just practising on each other, we were just goofing around. So when Grandma met us on the front steps in her purple housecoat and hugged a stiff Mr Clausen beneath the orange glow of the porch light, the millers swooping around their awkward embrace, and then sat me on the couch and gave me the mug of now lukewarm, too sweet tea she had been drinking, and wrapped my hands in hers and told me that she was just sitting down to watch TV when the doorbell rang and it was a state trooper and that there had been an accident and mum and dad, my mum and dad, had died. The first thing I thought, the very first thing, was she doesn't know about Irene and me at all. Nobody knows. And even right after she said it, and I guess I knew then that my parents were gone, 
or at least I had to have heard her, it still didn't register right. I mean, I had to have known this big thing, this massive news about my whole entire world, but I just kept thinking, Mum and Dad don't know about us. They don't know, so we're safe. Even though there was no more Mum and Dad to know about anything. I had been bracing myself that whole pick-up ride to hear how ashamed Grandma was of me, and instead she was crying, and I'd never seen Grandma Post cry like this. I'd never seen anyone cry like this. And she was making no sense, talking about some far-off car accident and a news broadcast and my dead parents and calling me a brave girl and stroking my hair and hugging me to her soft chest, her talcum powder and aquanet smell. I felt a wave of heat prickle across me, and then the nausea, all-consuming, as if I was taking it in with every breath, like my body was reacting since my head wasn't doing it right. How, if my parents were dead, could there still be some part of me that felt relief at not being found out? Grandma clutched me tighter, heaving with sobs, and I had to turn my head away from her sweet smell, the smother of that flannel housecoat, and pull myself out of her reach, run with my hand over my mouth to the bathroom, and even then there was no time to lift the lid on the toilet. I threw up into the sink, onto the counter, and then slid down to the floor, let the blue and white tiles cool my cheeks. I didn't know it then, but the sickness, the prickly flush of heat, and the feeling of swimming in a kind of blackness I couldn't ever have imagined. All the things I had done since I'd last seen my parents bobbing around me, lit up against the darkness. The kisses, the gum, Irene, Irene, Irene. All of that was guilt. Real, crushing guilt. From that tile floor, I let myself sink down into it, down and down until my lungs burned. Like when I was in the deep wells beneath the diving boards at the lake. Grandma came to help me to bed, and I wouldn't budge. Oh, honey girl, she said when she saw the mess in the sink. You need to get into bed now, sweetheart. You'll feel better if you do. I'll get you some water. I wouldn't answer her back, and I stayed completely still, willing her to just leave me alone. She left, but came back with a glass of water, which she set on the floor next to me because I wouldn't take it from her. Then she left again, and this time returned with a can of Comet, a rag... After all that had happened, Grandma was going to clean the sink, clean up after me, another mess, and it was this moment that somehow made what she had told me take hold. Seeing her there in the doorway with that green can, her pink eyes, the hem of her nightgown peeking from beneath her housecoat, Grandma stooped over with a yellow rag, sprinkling out the cleanser, that chemical mint smell puffing around us, her son dead and her daughter-in-law dead, and her only grandchild, now orphaned shoplifter, a girl who kissed girls, and she didn't even know. And now she was cleaning up my vomit, feeling even worse because of me. That's what made me cry. And when she heard me crying, finally saw me with actual tears. She got down on the floor, which was painful for her, I know, her bad knees, and held my head in her lap, and cried with me, stroked my hair, and I was too weak to tell her that I didn't deserve any of it. And so we'll stop there. That's the first part of chapter two. Um, I promise that it gets less sad. Although not always. But this is a very good book, so I would recommend sticking with it. But yeah. Um, as always, 
I although I doubt that you're listening to this when <laughs> you're going to sleep. I think you've probably fallen asleep by now. So you're listening in the morning. Good morning. I hope you have a wonderful day. Um, in all likelihood, when you're listening to this, I'll also be awake and preparing for a collection. So that should be fun. But if you have managed to get to the end of this before falling asleep, which on one hand, well done, but on the other hand, a bit upsetting because that defeats the purpose. Um, but either way, good night, my baby. Uh, I love you very much. I hope you dream of nice things, hopefully including me.